I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles at uh, Philemon. It's a book with only one chapter. Uh, it is a short of Paul's epistles. And many of you are probably wondering why I'm turning a, a book that's usually preached in one sermon into a series. I think Philemon is worthy of that. I think we should not um, relegate this uh, epistle to kind of the, the background and we only read it when we get to it. Uh, and we'd rather if I leave them before we read uh, numbers so sometimes we have those choices only. But it's not. It's an inspired portion of God's word. Uh, it's part of what God has left on record for his people as he inspired Paul to write this, what started out certainly as a, as a note between friends uh, in many ways has become a source of um, understanding for us. So, turn to Philemon, and we're going to read the first seven verses. Philemon, from verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Appiah, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. And so we ask that the Lord may bless this public reading of his word as we consider this book this morning. I wonder if you ever think about the spiritual legacy you will leave behind. It's something we perhaps don't think about often, and maybe others do. Think about the will you will leave behind for your family, and also there's a legacy uh, that we leave behind whether we like it or not. People usually want to know that they will be remembered when they have died. And the legacy and the extent to which they are remembered depends on how much money they bequeath to worthy causes, or how much they excel at human achievement. Right now, the cricketing world only remembers the great positives in Shane Warne's life. They've forgotten all his bad antics on the field. He is being remembered for arguably being the greatest spin bowler of all time. That's Shane Warne's legacy. We all live legacies. And when we have gone, people remember us by what we have done. The truth of this unintentional legacy is captured in the hymn <coughs> with lyrics written by Horatio Bonar and put in music by Irony Sankey. Second week, second time. In the matter of days, we're referring to Sankey's sacred songs and solos. He'll be smiling, he knows why. But Horatio Bona uh, wrote the words. Irony Sankey put this to a tune. And the, verse, the first verse of him goes something like this. Fading away like the stars in the morning, losing their light in the glorious sun, thus would we pass from this earth and its toiling, only remembered by what we have done. That's the truth. This escapes none of us. Both Paul and Philemon left behind memories of outstanding Christian traits. 
outstanding Christian legacies. Paul was a habitual prayer for the saints, and Philemon was a habitual lover of the saints. This morning's sermon will look at the significant legacies left by each of these beloved brothers. I've divided this section, we will be looking at verses 4 to 7, uh, possibly verse 7 very briefly, but I've divided this portion into four sections and I've given to you so you can perhaps track where we are, they're not equal in length, but it'll sign down and give you a sense of where we are to the sermon this morning, especially since there's no clock on the wall, you're going to have to trust me to stick to my time. There are four sections in this, uh, as I see in this portion, uh, the, persistence, the persistence of Paul's prayers, the motivation for Paul's prayers, the personalization of Paul's prayers, and the rewards of Paul's prayers. Let's jump into the very first section, the persistence of Paul's prayers, which we get from uh, verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. This is the thanksgiving section of this letter, verses 4 to 6. And it takes on a pattern that appears frequently in Paul's epistles. If you go to most of Paul's epistles, there is a pattern that he follows, which really is uh, backed up onto the pattern of letter writing for his day. Number one is a giving of thanks, and in Paul's cases to God. Uh, Call to remembrance specific people included in this prayer. Indication of why he prays for them, what caused him to pray in a certain way. And finally, he points out specific things that he prays for. So these four points uh, come out in Paul's uh, epistles in more ways uh, than one. This will be seen as we refer to the letters of Colossians, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, and the Ephesian epistles. We refer to those briefly, and you see these points coming out uh, to some degree or another. And all four of these points I mentioned now. Uh, are present imported to Philemon uh, as a right to Philemon. So let's look at how this pattern unfolds. Verse 4 says, I thank my God always. And that is a section where Paul gives thanks to God. A Philemon is considered to be a reasonably simple letter, and yet, like every portion of God's word, it presents interpretive challenges. And we're getting that portion right now more so in verse 6, but right here at the beginning of this Thanksgiving section, there is a challenge. It's something that is hard to kind of place because of uh, the way it's structured, and because of Paul's general vagueness in this letter, it does tend to lend to that. So, the immediate uh, verse we read produces difficulty. It's not immediately clear which, from which part of the text this word always uh, is meant to, meant to modify. Is Paul saying, I always thank God? Or is Paul saying, I always make mention of you in my prayers? Now, you may say that's kind of a, a, a distinction with no difference, the difference with no distinction, but it does make sense to some degree. The word always fits in with either phrase. It can be used anywhere. And while it's true that where its position doesn't alter the meaning of the text, a good student of God's word wants to be as precise as possible to know what the author's intent was. Otherwise we lose what the meaning of the text very often is. So these things sometimes seem uh, secondary, but nothing is secondary in God's word. So we need to make sure that when we see something, we understand why it's being said. And so, to attempt to clarify some of this, let's look at elsewhere in Scripture with Paul does exactly the same thing. I will quote this to you. You can turn if you want to, but I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. 
Colossians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Philippians 1 verse 3 to 4, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you. Ephesians 1 16, I do not cease or I always give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. It's clear from Colossians, Philippians and Ephesians that, that the adverb always modifies thanks in those uh, portions so we would uh, very easily place thanks with I thank God uh, in Paul's epistle to Philemon. It's the one that Paul can write in Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 thinking about this continuous thankfulness to God he says in Philippians 4 verse 6 do not be anxious about anything but in everything and when we say everything it means all the time right? Always. Uh, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God so Paul uh, sets for himself a standard which we see him applying in his epistles that he always in everything remains thankful to God and he does uses that as the, as the foundation with which he prays to God always praying to God Paul lived up to what he taught you pray to God unceasingly in everything, always. That's a hard act to follow. He takes his, he takes his example, I'm sure, from the Lord Jesus Christ, who, when everyone else went to sleep, he went to the mountain and he spent the night in prayer. And we find him consistently in prayer with his Father, even though he is equal to the Father. But as Jesus the man, he used prayer as a means of communication with the Father, in fellowship with the Father, so that he could even there show that he and the Father are one. We must be clear that Paul was not exaggerating when he says this. When Paul says he always prays, he's not speaking hyperbolically. Nothing in any of his texts indicates that he was exaggerating. He was really always praying for others. Irrespective of the challenges of his missionary work, we read a portion this morning where He's not on his missionary trip, but he's sitting on a trip, which is the result of his missionary work, and the, the, the trip is difficult, and Paul remains resolute uh, in sharing God's word and being prayerful about it. Uh, all of his many imprisonments, while in prison, Paul prayed, sang hymns. We know about what happened to the Philippian jail when Paul was in the Philippian jail. He sang hymns and prayed, and the gates were broken open, and the Philippian jailer was saved. All his many hardships never kept him away from a life of prayer. Paul prayed all the time. Not only were his prayers prolific, the beneficiaries of his prayers were expansive. Paul didn't just pray for one or two people. Which brings the second point of Paul's pattern of prayer. He calls people to remembrance. He says in verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. At times he prayed for individuals such as Philemon, right here. Or he prayed for Timothy. And so he committed these individuals to God in prayer with thankfulness. At other times he prayed for whole churches. His prayer group was expansive. Here are some examples. The church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Jesus Christ. To the Philippian church, we repeat again, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
He prays for the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. And it's almost a sense in Thessalonica that he's kind of thinking of specific people in the church. Maybe, it's not clear from the text, but there seems to be a thought in many, in, in many areas. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. The word all and constant remembrance and whole plethora of churches means that Paul spent a lot of time on his knees. Not sure where he found the time. Paul wasn't a man who had 48 hours to a day while we have 24. The same hours we had, he had. Paul never had any of the conveniences that we have to make our lives so much easier to have so much free time. Paul never had free time. When Paul was not uh, working, he was praying. And when he wasn't praying, he was interceding with churches and casting. So Paul was a man who gave up his time to pray. It is reasonable to assume that if the apostle prayed for all the individuals and churches just mentioned, it's most likely he prayed for many other individuals and churches not mentioned. He was a man of prayer. The unceasing and persistent nature of the apostle's prayer, or his prayer life, is a wonderful example for all believers. And so, we think of why do we not possibly pray? Like, well, I'm not making accusations to anybody. I'm sure that many of you and many Christians out there are praying consistently, insistently, unceasingly. But there are those of us who unfortunately don't always meet the grade. The first casualty of our lack of time so often is prayer. And I think that's something we need to concentrate on. So often we don't pray because we don't make the time. Too often we prioritize prayer out of our lives because we focus on things that we find more attractive. Things that bite us. Things that get us going. Things that proliferates our thinking and our desires. Things that draw us away from life. Things that draw us away from our families. Those are the things we plow our time and our energy but we don't do so with prayer. And most shameful of all, we sometimes simply forget to pray. We just forget. You have every intention of praying. You have have a desire to pray. You know you should pray. And so you start out the day or you finish the day intending to pray. And before you know it, you're on your way to work or you're already in bed and fast asleep. So often we just simply forget to pray. Paul was not forgetful about praying. Prayer was a central driving force of Paul's life. And we should pray that God grants us hearts like Paul that will yearn to pray. We need to pray that God gives us hearts to pray. It's not a natural uh, default position for us. It's not something that we just have from because of what we have been born with. It's not a natural trait. It's something that we need to um, uh, use and engage in because of the new life we have. Prayer is our conversation with God. Now, I use it very carefully. I know the term has been abused. But prayer is how we communicate to God what is on our hearts. Make no mistake, God already knows that. God's aware of it. When Paul prayed for Philemon, or for Timothy, or the Corinthian church, he wasn't telling God something new that God had no knowledge of. God knows what our needs are. But nonetheless, we are exhorted to pray always. Which brings us to the second uh, section of my sermon, and also brings us to the third 
point in Paul's prayer. The section is titled The Motivation for Paul's Prayers. And the third point in Paul's pattern of prayer is we ask what causes Paul to pray in this way? What drives Paul, what motivates Paul to pray in a certain way? Back to Philippians to Philemon, verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Verse 5. Because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. The motivation for the apostle's prayers lie in his detailed knowledge of whom he is praying for. Paul thanks God for Philemon because he knows about Philemon's love for the uh, love and faith. Faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ and love for the saints. Paul's fully aware of it. Paul is motivated by that knowledge to pray for Philemon. Note he doesn't pray for Philemon. Lord bless Philemon. Lord do for Philemon what you know he needs. Lord supply Philemon's needs as you know best. Nothing wrong with those prayers, but they lack personalization of your prayer. It lacks fellowship in prayer. It lacks understanding of what the person you're praying for needs most in his life or her life right now. Praying with general terms, uh, it's fine, it's nothing wrong, but it does say something about how much we know about the person for whom we're praying. Paul was intimately knowledgeable of what Philemon did, of what was true of his life. And he says good things about Philemon. He says that you love the Lord's people because of your faith towards the Lord Jesus himself. And at first glance, it seems that Paul's contact with Philemon is recent. Since he obviously knows so much about him, surely he must be with Paul right now. However, it's likely that several years have passed since Paul was instrumental in Philemon's conversion. In all likelihood, there's at least three years between when Paul lost, was face to face with Philemon, and the writing of this epistle. Paul has no recent contact with Philemon, but he's knowledgeable of Philemon's current status. That Philemon loves the Lord's people, and that he remains faithful to the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Probably this information is coming from Epaphras, who left, who came from Colossae, who is with Paul. And so in Colossians chapter 1, we see that link. And so Epaphras most likely told Paul something about Philemon, who was a member in the same church as Epaphras. So he wasn't gossiping about Philemon, he was carrying forward good news to Paul, which he knew Paul would be encouraged by Philemon's testimony. And of course, Onesimus himself is right there with Paul at the writing of his letter. And Onesimus was the most recent carrier of news about Philemon. <coughs> We're not sure what he told Paul. But all everything changed once Onesimus met Christ. So you speak of how he came by this knowledge. It was because of this knowledge that Paul is motivated to thanksgiving. This again is in keeping with other prayer patterns in Paul's literature. This is not a once-off for Paul. This is not something Paul has thought of as he's sitting in a Roman prison uh, not knowing what to do with himself. Paul is doing what he always does and he has a consistent pattern because Paul sees the consistent importance of what he's doing. We kind of weigh things up, so we would certainly make Romans and Hebrews far more important epistles than Philemon, or maybe even Titus, because we judge it on its content, and we judge it on its, 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 its length. But 
all four inspired portions of God's word. And while we certainly get different things out of them, and while we certainly approach them with different ways of, of understanding, uh, we must not relegate these short epistles to something that is less important than anything else. All scripture is breathed out by God. So, irrespective of how it came to knowledge, we know that uh, it motivates his sense. Here's other examples of this very same thing. In Colossians 1, 3, verse, 3 to 5 again, he says in verse 4, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now remember the Colossian church, which receives a letter at the same time that Philemon receives his letter. Both these letters have gone out from Paul. Both end up in Colossae. One is delivered to Philemon, and that will get ready in the church because the church is included in the, in the, in the greeting and one to Colossae. Paul has not met the Colossian church. Paul met Philemon most likely in Ephesus. But Paul has never met the Colossians. He did Paul praise for the Colossian church because he heard of their faith in Christ and of the love that they have for all the saints. The same things that Philemon displayed, they displayed. Philemon was a good ambassador for his church. The very things that they were strong in, he displayed in his private life. Into the Thessalonian church, Paul writes this, Remembering before God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spent time in this church and Paul remembers good things about it. And because he remembers those specific characteristics of the recipients of his prayers, he prays intelligently, he prays with a design, he prays with a plan. He brings before God the things that he knows they need most. And he leaves to God to fill the needs of those things he knows nothing about. The similarities between these verses are striking and show a consistency in the apostles' commitment to praying for fellow believers in various places. And taking all of the foregoing together, we learn the following about Paul's prayer life. Number one, Paul does not need circumstances, political pressure, social conditions, authoritarian oppression, or any other thing deter him from always giving thanksgiving to God. Circumstances didn't matter. Not even imprisonment can keep him from writing to Philemon and recording his prayers for Philemon. Number two, we see that the motivation for his thanksgiving was the faithfulness of Philemon to the Lord Jesus together with Philemon's love for the saints he had specific things to pray about. Number three, we see that Paul kept abreast of the happenings in the lives of people in his extensive prayer list. He was historically up to date with the people that he loved. His beloved brothers and sisters were not at an arm's length spiritually, even though physically, geographically, they were up to hundreds of miles separated. He prays for Philemon because of his current immediate situation. Number four, we see that the apostle applies to himself, or he taught others. Remember, Paul is applying in these uh, prayers what is taught elsewhere. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Paul teaches that church there. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let the request be made known to God. We repeat this for the second time this morning. This is what Paul taught, this is what Paul did. To the Thessalonian church, Paul says, pray without ceasing. Paul was not a man who says, do as I say, don't do as I do. He set the example. He set the pace. He set the, he set the, the level. He set how high we to go. He set how far we to go. He walked the walk. Because when he talked, he talked, he did so with authority. And finally, the apostle has not been prayer an addendum to his spiritual work, 
It's the core of his spiritual work. Paul's praying Valima is not a once of occurrence. It's a distinguishing quality of the apostle's life. So what is the relevance of all of this? The relevance becomes apparent when we see this epistle to Philemon in the context of Paul's other 12 epistles, especially those written to individual recipients. And I'll go through this very quickly. We've seen the similarity of greetings and thanksgiving sections between Philemon and other epistles. They all follow the same letter writing style of the day. But there's another way that these epistles have common ground. The other epistles share a lot of things in common, which we will show this morning does not happen to show up in Philemon, and yet Paul holds Philemon on the same level as these other epistles. <laughs> Most, well, every other one of the epistles, all 12 epistles, including 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, all touch on significant theological and doctrinal issues. Every one of Paul's other 12 epistles, after the greeting and after getting through uh, the sir, uh, getting his, his opening remarks, he gets into the meat of uh, the epistle and he invariably touches on extensive, uh, serious, significant theological and doctrinal issues. In 1 Timothy, uh, Paul expresses Im- important truths about such things as salvation, the attributes of God, the fall, election, and the second coming. coming. In 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy, which he writes from a dark, dismal, dank uh, Roman cell. The last moments we know about Paul's life. Uh, a time which was very different to his first imprisonment. But even then he encourages Timothy by alluding to several things that are significant doctrines. Salvation, God's grace, the person of Christ, and perseverance. And in that epistle he actually includes the, one of the most crucial texts of all scripture. Where he says in chapter 3 verse 16, all scripture is breathed about God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. With Paul writes to Titus, uh, his focus is not on explaining or defending doctrine because he trusts Titus's uh, understanding. However, even there, he affirms things like sovereign election, he affirms saving grace, he affirms the deity of Christ and Christ's substitution atonement. So even in those personal private letters to Timothy and Titus, Paul includes theological material uh, which appears to some extent in all the other epistles. So in that sense, all other 12 epistles look the same. Each of these three uh, personal epistles is pregnant with rich theological doctrinal truths as are the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical epistles. This is not present in Philemon. And one always expects to write Paul to write Philemon in a way which maybe was less intense, spiritually speaking. Uh, speaking from the perspective of, of inspiration. Maybe it was just a note, a friendly note to Philemon uh, as an attachment to the letter going to Colossians. And maybe like in the PS, but it's not. Paul doesn't do that. He's consistent in his approach to personal letters as he is to public letters. He treats them with the same seriousness because Paul has a singularly monocultural biblical perspective of life. Paul says this, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, including writing letters to friends, that's my inclusion, do all the glory of God. So whatever Paul does, including letters that could be misconstrued as just a personal note, needs to be done to the glory of God. And Paul's writing of Philemon is significant enough that it has ended up in the canon of Scripture. 
It's the last of uh, the Pauline epistles. Uh, it closes off the Pauline section of the canon, but it's there. It's not been missed. Other letters have been lost. Letters to Corinthians have, some of them have been gone. And we'll never see them. Yet here's a letter, a short letter, that is significant enough to be included in the canon of Scripture. What this means is that Paul does not write to the churches with a... Rather, what this means is that Paul writes to the churches with a spiritual perspective. And he doesn't write to them with that perspective and writes to Philemon in a cultural way or in a secular way. He doesn't do that separation. Paul is only one perspective. His spiritual perspective is his only perspective. So in summary of verses 4 and 5, we see Paul is number one, a man committed to prayer. We see number two, Paul took time to know the people he was praying for. We see number three, Paul never made distinctions between his spiritual life and his secular life. His spiritual focus and his secular focus. His spiritual focus was his only focus. And what implications can we draw for ourselves from that? I think it's important that we realize that Philemon was directed to Philemon to get Philemon through a time in his life when he needed serious help. But it's not only for Philemon. The things we see Philemon learns in a specific way as it's applied to his life has huge implications for our lives too. The question also solves is how do we deal with life? Are we unceasingly thankful in all things? Do we refuse to let the circumstance of our lives interrupt our time in prayer with God? Are we thankful in all things, as Paul's prayer indicates? Do we count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds? And does that reflect itself in our consistent, joyful, thankful prayer life? Number two, do we know each other well enough to be motivated to pray for specific things in each other's lives? Paul never had the convenience of signal and email. He couldn't help himself when he send a, send a WhatsApp. Or the ease of making a phone call. Paul didn't have the luxury of meeting Philemon in a coffee shop for some Christian quality time. Didn't happen. But even after three years of separation, he knows how to pray about Philemon. Specifically. We need to know how to follow the example. Number three. We need to move away from a dichotomous worldview. Here's a quote from a Christian website. Listen carefully. And I quote, Our God is a very real God. Very involved in our physical lives. And this person quotes from Colossians, In Him He holds all things together. If it weren't for the spiritual reality of our God, we ourselves and all around us would immediately disintegrate or implode. All of the universe would fall apart. The fact is that we cannot separate our physical world from the spiritual reality. Paul lived in this physical world with a spiritual reality, and it showed in his prayers. Paul's letter to Philemon is not just a letter to Philemon. It provides direction for how we live in 2022. <clears throat> the third part of my sermon, the, personaliz- the personalization of Paul's prayers, coincides with a fourth point in Paul's pattern specific things he prays for. The six, <coughs> and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now this verse is universally recognized by commentators as the most difficult verse in Philemon. And this can be seen by the fact that there are several different interpretations of how this verse unpacks in the English translations as you go to various sources. 
Just by reading the translations alone, you see how this has taken up uh, many different interpretations. We're not going to consider them. I don't believe that more is better. Very often, less is more. And a wide divergent interpretation may only prove more confusing and helpful. However, I would prefer to arrive at an understanding of the six by considering the purpose of this letter and the author's intent. Let the letter speak for itself and see if Paul, in this letter, helps to understand what verse six means, as challenging as it may be because of the way it is constructed. Paul addresses a, a situation that is not totally uncommon in the first century Roman culture. While slaves knew that running away would result in dire consequences of court, and we'll touch on some of that in another sermon, they were nonetheless not complete, completely deterred from running away if an if a opportunity arose. Irrespective of possible punishment in court, if a slave could run away, they ran away. Consequences could be dire, whether they caught or not. We'll cover some of that later on. But if a chance provided itself, a slave who wanted to be free from his master could run away. When slaves are caught and returned to their masters, the punishment ranged from loss of benefits to death. And the severity depended on the slave, his value, and depending on what was lost to the master or the slave owner when he was gone, and it may also depend on the, on the slave owner's temperament. So when the slave came back, he had no idea what to expect. It could be nothing more than loss of privileges, which was significant. He could also lose his life. Whatever the consequences were, they were never present to the slave. The epistle to Philemon has at his court just such a situation. Onesimus has run away. Paul is going to send him back. Paul wants Philemon's receptor of Onesimus to be countercultural. You want to be countercultural? Paul was countercultural. He was at the very cusp of countercultural lifestyle. Everything Paul did, and everything the church did, and everything that the way was known for was countercultural in its day. And they suffered for it. They were persecuted for it. They died for that. Back to Philemon, still alive. Onesimus had run away, and Paul sending him back. Paul wants Philemon, reception of Onesimus, to be such that it signifies what Christian fellowship and forgiveness looks like. The focus of being, of being not to punish the slave, but to honor Christ. Paul's intent is to take Philemon's focus off what he has to do with his runaway slave, return to him, and focus on the real important person in his life, Jesus Christ. And when we all do that, all the things we have to handle in our normal daily lives becomes easier to deal with because we see that in the light of Christ. So Paul is in a very subtle way, in a, in a very um, subdued way, uh, pushing Philemon more and more to understand how what he is needs to be reflected now in the situation he finds himself in. Paul has ever chosen not to tell Philemon directly what to do, but determines it is best for all, for Philemon, for Onesimus, for Paul and for the church at Colossae, that Philemon arrives at the decision to do the right thing by himself. This uh, letter is a, a textbook case of diplomacy. Paul is diplomatic to the last degree. He says things in such a way that uh, it's hard to see him telling Philemon what to do. 
And he's leading Philemon along a path where Philemon comes to a decision by himself and for many reasons, which we clarify later on in another sermon. But nonetheless, Paul's telling him what to do. And Paul is gentle, and Paul is careful, and Paul is sensitive, but Paul is nonetheless direct in what he is leading Philemon to do. Paul, in other words, leads Philemon to decide what he should do. But Paul does not entirely get out of the way. He writes a letter that is purposefully vague, says not to be taken as a command. He says, in his letter, I don't command you. I could, but I don't. But still pertinent enough to be clear what he expects Philemon to do. Paul brings into focus several things that are already active in Philemon's life, as he gently steers Philemon to make a decision. Paul points out to Philemon that, number one, he, Philemon, is recognized for loving the saints and refreshing their hearts. Verse 5 to 7. He's actively sharing in his common faith, and the results are being seen. Number 2. Verse 5 says that Philemon is faithfully devoted to Christ. Number 3. Verses 7, 17, and 20 say he has a good relationship with Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul shows that. This man is a good relationship with one of the leading uh, teachers in the church. And number four, he has a good standing in the church, as can be seen from the list of brothers who send him greeting. Right at the end, all those brothers are sending him greeting because they know Philemon. And some of them have been with Philemon. And so his testimony, his character, his disposition, and what he, has, what he reflects as an ambassador for the Colossian church is known to all. Taken above, it is clear that Philemon clearly understood what it meant to be a good brother who actively shared with other believers in a common faith. And the reason this was that way was because the Lord Jesus had forgiven each one of them. They no longer faced condemnation, but they lived by grace. Philemon and the Colossian church had once upon a time been enslaved to Satan and sin. They had been released from that by the blood of Jesus Christ. And now they were enslaved to Christ no longer in a way that was oppressing, but a way that showed grace uh, being true in their lives. With this as a backdrop, we can attempt to understand what the six means when Paul says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This verse links back to verse 4. In fact, if you look at your Bible, especially the ESV version, the translators link it back to verse 4 when they say, And I pray... Those words, and I praise not in the original text, but it's inferred by the translators to carry a thought across. In fact, we should even read this, verse 4, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, verse 6, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. So it's almost over verse 5, it's parenthetical, but it's essential. And so this thought carried over into verse 6. And the phrase of the sharing of is translated elsewhere in scripture as the word fellowship. So when Paul says that, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective, he says that the sharing of your faith is something to do with fellowship. Now, we're going to have fellowship, and Paul's not talking about that fellowship. Possibly the best known example of this kind of fellowship is Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And they continued steadfastly. This is active um, engagement of the church. They are actively doing this. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, that's the word, in breaking of bread and in prayers. 
And Paul's use here is not that you belong to a fellowship. That is that fellowship is a thing to go to or belong to, but rather that you're actively engaged in sharing, in actively participating with other believers in the realities of your new life in Christ. It's an action. It's not a thing you kind of attend when you're feeling lonely. It's you being active and sharing your faith and, and redeemed life in Christ with others so that they see the redeemed life of Christ in you working out. The active participation was the reality of Colossian church life. And Philemon played a central role in this. He refreshed the hearts of the saints and he benefited by being part of the local church. Paul prays that this active sharing might be effective and have a powerful outcome. Paul wants Philemon's actions to send a powerful message to the church about the importance of forgiveness. And to achieve this, Philemon had to have a deepening of the understanding of every good work that is shared in Christ. The ESV says it this way, has to become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing. In other words, the understanding of the good we share in Christ does not end at the door of the place where we meet at the church, where the church meets. The understanding of the good things we share in Christ must extend to all facets of our Christian life. Even those that are unpleasant. In situations where we deal with people who are unpleasant. And this will fool ourselves. Very often, we have unpleasant dynamics, dimensions between some of us, even as brother and sister. We have to get to that. That cannot impede our desire and determination to be actively engaged in living a life together in Christ for the sake of Christ. And so, Paul says, your understanding needs to be deepened. Whose understanding? Philemon's understanding. The NIV renders this very clearly. It says, for verse 6 in the NIV, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Fourth prayer for Philemon is that as he understands what the partnership in the faith looks like in the context of the church, he now needs to understand that that partnership will now have to include Onesimus. Onesimus is coming home. The one who ran away is coming back. The one who caused your family and your household harm is on his way to return. He's now no longer coming back as a slave. He's coming back as a beloved brother. And the same fellowship that you enjoyed in the Colossian church, the same love you showed to them, and the same engagement you had because of the sake, for the sake of Christ, now to be transferred to the one who the rest of the city expects you to chastise, punish, and depending on the, uh, the, the, the extent of the, of, the, of the crime, maybe even put to death. Verse 6 forms the foundation of Paul's appeal as he slowly but inexorably steers Philemon on the path of which the outcome is for the sake of Christ. It is important that we do not make the truth of the six relevant to Philemon alone. This was undoubtedly applicable to him. This was written to Philemon. Let's make no mistake about that. That's what we understand it to be. But the lesson learned holds true in our times also. It was required of Philemon that he embraces a brother in Christ, even though the same brother was once a runaway slave. Salvation has changed in this image permanently. And the brotherhood that he and Philemon are now compelled to share had to be recognized by Philemon, by Philemon and had to result in fellowship. Paul's preparing the way for Philemon's return. Paul hasn't mentioned Philemon's name yet. He hasn't raised the issue in detail yet. He's slowly but carefully preparing Philemon's heart so when Philemon gets there, Philemon knows what to do. 
but Willem had to justify his statement when he gets down to the middle of this epistle. Being actively engaged with other believers requires that we deal with any separating differences in love and find forgiveness in our heart for the sake of Christ. The six has actually been paraphrased by Dr. Douglas Moo. Listen to Dr. Douglas Moo's para- Dr. Douglas Moo's it's hard to say the one, right? And think clearly. Paraphrase of verse 6. Philemon, I quote, Philemon, I'm praying that the mutual participation that arises from your faith in Christ might become effective in leading you to understand and put into practice all that all the good that God wants for us and that is found in our community. And do all this for the sake of Christ. My final point, and with this we will draw to a close. The rewards of Paul's prayer. Verse 7, uh, sorry, um, yeah, verse 7. The rewards of Paul's prayer. For I derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints had been refreshed through me. The Thanksgiving section ends at verse 6, uh, but verse 7 fits best into this uh, part, even though it's a transitional uh, um, verse. It really joins the, 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 the end of the thanksgiving section with the rest of the body of the epistle, which will unpack uh, what Paul is dealing with. Verse 7 is a personal note about Paul's own experience in the appreciation of Philemon's love. Paul introduces one of his many chiastic structures here, those of you who are interested in chiastic structures, right here. Uh, in verse 5, Paul speaks about Philemon's love and faith. In verse 6, he speaks about Philemon's faith. In the same speaks about Philemon's love. So Paul takes love, faith, faith, love over these verses and he builds up a chiastic structure which uh, jumps out at you when you see that. Late in this epistle, Paul will refer to Onesimus as being his very heart. And so we want to focus on that phrase in verse 7 where it says, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed. And Paul doesn't mention this word hearts three times in this epistle. It's only ever mentioned eight times in the entire New Testament, in all of Paul's writings. He mentions three times in his shortest letter that he writes to Philemon. In verse 20, Paul refers to his own heart being refreshed by Philemon's generosity. And the word heart is used as a synonym for a seat of affection. And Paul is going to use this idea, this movie of your bowels, uh, the seat of affection to encourage Philemon to respond to his appeal. The ground for his appeal is laid in verse 7, where Paul commends Philemon for enriching the hearts of the saints. Paul continues to hammer home to Philemon, you are a good man. You have done good things. Now we know this in the context of the fact that we are all fallen sinners, but understand, this is the Apostle Paul who is making a justified and true and realistic assessment of a brother in a church where he where it's far from Paul, where Paul wants to guide him through a very difficult situation and he wants to hone in on what is good. Paul, who could have written the book One Minute Manager, he knows exactly where to go to and what to stay away from. This man is phenomenal. Paul derives much joy and comfort from Philemon's love. And the reason for this is that he, this love has been source, been the source of the refreshment of the saints in verse 6. We find an interesting situation. Philemon is a catalyst for joy, comfort, and refreshing. Both of those around him, he's refreshing the saints at Colossae, and those afar, he's refreshing the heart of the Apostle Paul. 
This is an amazing testimony. And as this letter progresses, Paul will make an appeal to this love on behalf of Onesimus. What about you and me? Can it be said of us that we have refreshed the hearts of the saints? Do we do that? Have we done it? Do we want to do that? It costs. It costs energy. It costs involvement. It costs getting to know people. To asking them the questions for which you do not really want the answers. Is getting involved in their lives. Sitting through difficult conversations. And sometimes just opening up to each other. So that you can, because of that, find a way to refresh each other's hearts. The others were granted, uh, the others were granted joy. Some must say, well, we should remember that. Others are granted joy and comfort because of the active sharing of our love. Love is not a dead thing. We've gone through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is an action. Love is active. Love is best experienced when it is shown to someone else. What about our legacy? Paul will be remembered as a man of prayer, a man who ceaselessly, incessantly went to God in thankfulness, irrespective of his surrounding conditions. Philemon is behind a legacy of love for the saints, faithfulness to Christ, uh, a man who refreshed those who were around him, and those who were afar. The legacy of Paul, the legacy of Philemon, legacies to emulate. We pray that God may cause ours to be similar as we walk in a real world with a spiritual reality for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your, your abundant goodness to us. We thank you for what we have before us. We thank you for these epistles, these letters that were written in a time and a place far removed from our current circumstances, and yet so pertinent, so relevant, so easy to be actualized in our lives today. We pray that what you have taught us from your word, and that your word itself may continue to shape our hearts, our minds, our lives, so we honor Christ in all that we say, in all that we do. I will ask you this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.